were in Washington, D.C., you would not find much geothermal steam. Not much geothermal. There's a lot of hot air, (laughs) but it's all above ground. This is EngieCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we are talking about geothermal, the renewable energy that everyone wishes we had more of, but we hear so little about. And if you want to skip the monologue and head straight for the interview, that begins at 3.35. What is wrong with the geothermal industry? Power sources are typically defined by their drawbacks, but geothermal energy has so few that its place in our energy portfolio is absolutely baffling. Here is a renewable energy source that can provide baseload power, unlike every other renewable technology that has some form of intermittency. Geothermal energy is everywhere. You go down far enough, it gets hot enough. The technology is here. In fact, the fundamentals are at least 100 years old. It's also efficient in terms of other steam generation, which vape off tons of water. The geothermal system is closed loop, and the water gets reused. And yet, geothermal makes up 0.4% of the electricity produced in this country. Wind is about 55 by comparison. It's tiny. <laughs> geothermal is like Michael Keaton. I'm Batman. We all love the guy, and yet we didn't see him in movies for about 15 years. Our guest today is going to explain some of the challenges geothermal faces and why this baseload energy source is not as prevalent as we'd wish. We spent a lot of time talking about his areas of expertise, which include policy and project financing. But let's take a minute to explain how geothermal actually works. First off, geothermal energy comes from heat generated at the center of the Earth, where temperatures are as hot as the center of the sun, about 5,500 Celsius. Closer to the surface, candidates for geothermal considered moderate temperature range from 90 to 150 degrees Celsius, and anything hotter than that is considered high temperature, the real pay dirt of the industry, if you will. There are three technologies for commercial geothermal plants, flash, dry steam, and binary cycle. Flash are the most common. The fluid is greater than 182 degrees Celsius, and under great pressure, it is pumped into a flash tank at the surface, where at the lower pressure, it quickly vaporizes or flashes and drives a turbine. Dry steam plants are the oldest technology of the three and how you'd probably picture a geothermal facility to operate. Fluid from a production well travels to the surface as steam. It drives a turbine and the steam condenses and returns to the injection well. The steam only has to be about 150 degrees Celsius. And finally, binary cycle systems use a heat exchanger to transfer heat between a water loop cycling underground and a closed loop system powering the turbine. Experts think this binary cycle technique may be the future of geothermal technology. Explaining these concepts is never easy in the podcast format, so be sure to check out the website for illustrations of these three technologies. About 3,500 megawatts of geothermal power are being produced today, but the U.S. Geological Survey believes resources for undiscovered geothermal could reach nearly 73,000 megawatts. That's a lot of hot rocks. 
Our guest today is Keith Martin, partner at Chadburn and Park in Washington, D.C. Chadburn is a member of the Geothermal Energy Association, and its client in the geothermal sector is Ormont Technologies. Mr. Martin is an alumni of George Washington University Law and the London School of Economics and Political Science. He is one of the preeminent attorneys in the country in the field of tax and project finance for renewable energy. So, as a project manager, it was fascinating to talk to him about the logistics of getting sophisticated projects like these off the ground. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Keith Martin. We are here with Keith Martin. You also are with the Geothermal Energy Association, board member? No, our law firm is a member of the association. We've worked with quite a few geothermal projects. Our principal client in that field is ORMAT, which is one of the main uh, geothermal developers. I've been talking to coal people, gas people, nukes, renewables, everybody. And I do this little thing where we go through what do you think about all the different energy technologies out there. And every single one of them goes, why don't I hear more about geothermal? So I guess as representation, Mr. Martin, why don't we hear more about geothermal energy? It's too small a market. There are only 3,000 and some megawatts of installed geothermal capacity in the United States. That's out of 1.1 million megawatts of capacity overall. So it's just tiny. It's on the scale of fuel cells, for example. And what challenges are we having deploying this technology more widely? It's renewable and it's baseload. So what are the challenges there? The main challenge is the resource adequacy. If you put down wells to pull out geothermal steam or fluid, the market has been burned by predictions that the resource will be enough to support a 40 megawatt or 50 megawatt power plant when it comes in at 17 megawatt or 23 and it seems like many of the projects have struggled and they've had to continue drilling put down more wells and that in turn has made the financial community worried about financing them I think things are getting a little better I know for example Ormat one of the most prominent geothermal developers is working on phase three of a project in Nevada and the resource was more than adequate to support the first two phases so that's the welcome change but in general people have struggled. I remember sitting at a soccer match in Britain about three years ago with a banker who was intending to finance. He was part of a consortium. He backed out and the project did not perform as well as expected and he said that would have been a career-ending move had we closed. So that's the perspective of some of the financiers. We see maps where they show where good sources of geothermal would be. Where is the ideal location for a geothermal plant? And I'm not just talking parts of the map where it's red and then it's green where maybe you shouldn't cite it, but where would be the ideal location? Well, most of the geothermal activity in the United States has been in Nevada, California, and then to a lesser extent, Oregon. I know we've had people come in looking at Texas, for example, and places like Iceland have been the home of the geothermal industry. Ormat itself is an Israeli company that also does projects in Central America, Kenya, Indonesia, and that's where most of the activity is. I'm in Charlotte, so there's no talk about doing it anywhere east of the Mississippi, I take it. Yes. I have a feeling if you put down a well 
here, we're in Washington, D.C., you would not find much geothermal steam. Not much geothermal. There's a lot of hot air, but it's all above ground. (laughs) Isn't it always? We talked about Iceland. I think that's where people really, when they picture geothermal, it's happening. Is there anywhere else in the world that serves as a good example of a robust geothermal fleet that you've seen? I think the places I mentioned are the ones with the most activity. Some of the early lenders to geothermal were Icelandic banks because they had experience with it. We're here in Washington. Let's talk about DOE a little bit. Have they shown an appetite for geothermal, you think? They have. DOE has various sector offices within their research section that have been promoting advances in technology. And also there are National Renewable Energy Labs that are under the DOE umbrella that also promotes this stuff. The outlook for this, though, under a Trump administration is a little less clear. All of these budgets, apart from the defense budget, are being cut back significantly. Let's talk about utilities. What do most utilities say about geothermal and the idea of adding it to their fleet? Most utilities don't have an opportunity to buy geothermal. So the ones that do, I think they are interested in baseload sources of power, ones that aren't contributing to global warming. And they're interested in diversification of their portfolios. So it's in places where it is available, I think they've found a good reception from the utilities. And who would those utilities be? Probably out west? NV uh, Energy, which is a Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary, Sierra Pacific Gas and Electric. Calpine has the Geysers Field in Northern California. There are 17, 18, 19 geothermal power plants almost along a beltway. It's pipes that transport steam. And then the Salton Sea, which is, I believe, in Southern California. It's in the desert. Those are some of the places where the utilities, Southern California Edison's the utility down there. What are some of the overhead costs associated with geothermal energy? You'd think that there wouldn't be that many. It's renewable without getting too technical. What are some of the overhead? Were there unexpected overhead costs when they build them? It's time consuming to put a geothermal project together. And you see this in the renewable energy industry in the United States. The Obama administration was keen to promote renewable energy because its top priority was to deal with global warming. And renewable energy was one way to help that. So the Obama administration put in place subsidies originally under the economic stimulus bill in 2009. And then there were tax credits to promote renewables. But in all of these cases, these programs are temporary. And there are deadlines to start construction. And in many cases, there are also deadlines to finish. Geothermal has been disadvantaged in that process because a wind farm takes six months to build, although there may be two or three years ahead of that trying to develop it. Solar, same thing. But geothermal, you're out in the field trying to determine whether the resource is enough to support geothermal. A lot of the resources on BLM, Bureau of Land Management, so you have to work out arrangements with the federal government to lease the land. Then you're drilling, you drill a slim hole to try to test the resource, then you put down a production well. A 40 megawatt geothermal power plant probably needs five production wells, and then it needs two or three injection wells to re-inject the spent fluid back into the ground to reheat it. So developing the resource is a process. It takes time, and then you have to run the pipes. You have to then build the power plant. It's a much longer gestation period than for other types of renewables, and that makes it hard to qualify for these subsidies harder, and then there are more challenges in financing for that reason. Let's talk about regulations. Is there anything that the government could do to get out of the way, facilitate more of these projects, facilitate maybe more R&D where it's needed? What do you think is needed? We usually come in in two places. One is in the development stage, there are questions about we may help with permitting, negotiating BLM leases, things like this. The other is once you start talking about financing, how to structure the financing. Is it debt? Is it tax equity? If it's both, where is the debt? Is it ahead or behind the tax equity? All these financings are complicated. They take quite a while. 
while, they're an exercise in risk allocation. You have to identify every risk and you've got to figure out who's going to take it. And until you've done that, then the financing won't close. Is there anything else that can be helped to help with the economics of geothermal energy? I think you talked a little bit about tax incentives. Was there anything else? Do we just need to do more research to cap it up? No, I think the geothermal companies themselves, Berkshire Hathaway, Calpine, Ormat are the principal actors here in the U.S. market are motivated enough and they are constantly trying to innovate. I think the one missing thing is in late 2015, Congress breathed new life into the tax credits for wind and solar. Wind, which shares the same tax credit the geothermal does, it's basically a, what's called a production tax credit of $23 a megawatt hour on the electricity output for 10 years. Though wind industry was given a phase-out schedule for that, if you started construction at the end of last year, you were given full tax credits. If you start this year, 80% of them, next year, 60, and then 40. But geothermal was just given to the end of 2016. You had to start construction. Didn't have the phase out. And so that is one place where there needs to be more parity. What companies are making the biggest advancements in the industry right now? I think the three I mentioned are the big three. The Geothermal Energy Association has an annual conference. It's usually in Sacramento, usually in August. It's small by comparison to the rest of the industry. It's in a hotel. There are a few hundred people there at most, 200, 300 people. Whereas if you go to the wind convention, it's probably about 8,000 these days, six to 8,000. You go to the solar convention, it's 22,000 people. I was at a solar finance meeting last week. It's an annual thing in San Diego. There were almost 1,000 people registered and probably another 400 just there for meetings. These are just the finance people in that industry. Wind was 550 people registered and a lot more. There is no geothermal equivalent. It's just not a large enough market. I spent a lot of time in Texas. I got started doing oil and gas, specifically water treatment. And I talked to a lot of lawmakers, a lot of those guys were oil men. And one of the things that seemed to be happening there was a lot of the oil and gas guys back in Texas were saying, look, we're drilling holes, we're seeing geothermal. Do you think there could be a little bit more synergy between the drillers, the oil and gas sector, and maybe geothermal? Do you think maybe that's not fully exploited? Well, the oil and gas people have some of the same skills that are needed for geothermal, but not all of them. And as I mentioned, we've had people come in who are interested in drilling and building geothermal in Texas, but it just has seemed a little too challenging. For one thing, the financial community, everybody wants to deal with the same handful of players who've demonstrated they know what they're doing. It's very hard for anybody else to break in. You're considered one of the preeminent project finance lawyers in the country. I've crammed on several of your writings in the past 24 hours. How does financing a geothermal project compare with conventional fossil, nukes, renewables? Where does that fit? Well, there are many similarities. The one similarity is if you want to go borrow $300 million or $400 million as a sponsor, you need to lock down a revenue stream and then you need to lock down your costs. And until you've done that, nobody's going to lend you that kind of money. The other similarity is once you actually have done that and then start to talk to the banks or the tax equity investors, then it's an exercise in risk allocation. You need to figure out everything that can go wrong and then figure out who will bear that in the deal. And the rule of thumb in project finance is he who understands the risk best is the one who should bear it. Then things diverge. In renewable energy, we promote renewable energy in this country in two manners. One is through tax credit subsidies. There 
or two of them that together amount to at least 56 cents per dollar of capital cost. And then we also promote in 29 states in the District of Columbia, we require utilities to deliver a certain percentage of electricity from renewables. These are called renewable portfolio standards. The tax benefits are hard for most developers to use. And so the core financing tool in renewable energy, including geothermal, is to get value for that 56 cents per dollar of capital cost. The way it's done is through complicated structures called tax equity. These are usually banks and insurance companies that are willing basically to lend money and be repaid partly in cash, but the rest in tax benefits. And so that's where the geothermal company starts. And it might raise anywhere from 20 to 60% of the capital cost in the tax equity market. And then it has to fill in the rest of the capital stack. And that is usually some form of debt. Ironically, debt is less expensive than tax equity, but the sponsors still deal with the tax equity investors because in a sense, this is found money. They have a currency like monopoly money, won't buy them anything. So they'd rather just turn it in for cash. And then the tax equity market might be charging anywhere from 8% to 13% for use of its money, whereas the lenders are maybe 200, 375 basis points above LIBOR. It's five, 6%. So they try to mix these two things together and then the rest would be equity, which is expensive. I was in Charlotte last spring for the Charlotte Business Journal event. Duke's CFO, Steve Young, was there. And one of the things I got to ask around the audience was what goes into pulling the trigger on a power plant. These facilities could last half a dozen presidential administrations, especially the coal plants and the bigger baseload facilities. How do you even begin to perform a risk analysis on something that's going to last that long through that much political diversity? How does that even begin to happen if you're building a power plant? There are different categories of risk. There are business risks. And Steve Young, for example, would be in a good position with his engineers at Duke and price forecasters to figure out where the broader electricity market is headed. They're building a power plant. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, and they want to make sure they get a healthy return. Electricity demand in this country has been shrinking or has been static. The last two years has gone down. I keep telling the project finance lawyers here, there are 93 of them in my group, plus another 40 who work full-time on energy. Imagine how easy our lives would be if people wanted more of our product. We've lived our entire careers in a market in which people don't really want more of the product. So that's one thing is where are electricity prices going? Where is electricity demand? What might change this? Electric vehicles might step in. Batteries might displace peaking power plants, for example. Another category of risks are just legal changes. In all these markets, some of them are regulated by public utility commissions. Where might that head? Some of them are unregulated. Most of the geothermal business is unregulated. How might the incentives change over time? How might environmental regulations change? Could be a good thing for geothermal if other coal plants have to be retired. There are environmental changes. The regulations are always changing. There are endangered species. There are emissions controls, things like this. So I think we have different specialists. To the extent we're doing legal diligence, there's an environmental lawyer, there's a real estate lawyer looking at risks around the use of the site. There are corporate lawyers. There are people looking at the community reaction to it, how that might change, where the population might grow, things like this. Do you think the geothermal could be a healthy hedge against possible price on carbon in the future? Or is it just too small for that? <clears throat> I think it could. That's why the renewables industry has been pushing for a price on carbon. Obviously not going to happen as long as Trump's in office. Most of the utilities are assuming that we're going to have to continue ratcheting down on carbon emissions. And I think they're just viewing this Trump interlude as a blip. Are you in favor of pricing carbon? I think it's a good idea. I trained as an economist before I went to law school. And there are externalities that really ought to be priced in here to make sensible business decisions. Tell me about 
your history with the industry. How did you get involved with geothermal specifically? I worked on Capitol Hill. I was a legislative assistant to Henry Scoop Jackson from Washington State. He was the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. And then I was counsel to Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York. And I left the Hill after 1982, after the elections. Chadbourne, at the time, saw this new industry developing. After the Arab oil embargo in the 1970s, Congress decided it wanted to encourage entrepreneurs to get into the business of generating electricity and to do so more efficiently than the incumbent utilities. It passed a statute in 1978 called PURPA, P-U-R-P-A, that required utilities to buy from these entrepreneurs. They were called independent power producers. And we were representing the paper industry at the time, and they were big generators of their own electricity. They had spare electricity to sell utilities. They went knocking on utility doors, but getting them slammed in their faces. So we ended up litigating against utilities in 20 states to open markets and taking a key case to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's how I got involved. We were just starting this group, and it's grown. We did $43 billion in financing to 2015, probably in the upper $20 billion last year. Last year was a down market for everybody. One of the early clients to come in was ORMAP in the early 80s, and they were doing geothermal projects in California and Nevada, and they were very interested at the time in the tax incentives that Congress had provided to encourage geothermal. Those incentives stayed on the statute books from 78 to 85, and that's how I got started. We've had two periods of encouraging renewables here. That first runway from 78 to 85, and then the public lost interest, and then we started again in the 1990s, and we still have this runway. And The plane, in many senses, has taken off for the wind industry, solar. The subsidies work. They brought down the cost through economies of scale. Geothermal has used an older technology, and it's come back. There's been a lot more activity lately. Last thing I do is a lightning round where I ask, what do they think of all the different energy technologies out there? Natural gas. Natural gas is the fastest growing source of power in the U.S. Crude oil. I feel for the crude oil producers, this Keystone pipeline is going to bring much more oil into what's already a swamp market. So I just don't see the oil prices recovering. We have a big practice in the Middle East, and that's struggling too, just because of falling oil prices. Nuclear. Nuclear, I think, is sunk. Westinghouse is now bankrupt or close to it. We were counsel on the first nuclear power plant in a generation, Volktel in Georgia. Now that is having to sort out the possibility Westinghouse will back out of that project. Coal. I just don't see coal getting revived. It's just a question of whether the retirements of coal plants are slowed down at all. They're still about 25% of U.S. generating capacity. Real quick, yes or no, do you think there's going to be another coal plant built in this country? No. Wind. Wind is about 83,000 megawatts out of the 1.1 million. That is a market that is moving places. It's dealing with the clean energy paradox, which is since the fuel's free, renewables companies tend to pull down the price of electricity and they struggle themselves to stay in business as the prices keep falling, drawn down by themselves. And on the other side, solar. Solar, I think, has shown in the last few auctions in Abu Dhabi, Chile, Mexico, solar has been the lowest cost producer. Solar has a great future. Biofuels. We did 40% of the biofuels deals in the U.S. before the financial collapse in 2008. Most of that's turned into a bankruptcy play. I think what people have seen in biofuels is the commodity prices are too volatile and the market just swings back and forth as a consequence. Hydrogen fuel cells. There was a little burst of interest in them, and that's kind of disappeared. Hydroelectric. Hydro is a mainstay. Most of the activity we're seeing now is interest in pump storage as a form of battery. And to summarize, geothermal. Geothermal, I think, will continue to 
percolate at a low level. It's about 3,000 megawatts. It's a small part of the U.S. market. Electric vehicles. That's a very interesting question. The public doesn't seem to be going for them, but I think what will break through is if the public utility commissions allow utilities to put out all the charging stations and put them in their rate bases. Maybe even the utilities should follow Solar City's model of giving cars to consumers for free and then just charging them for electricity. And then finally, nuclear fusion. I don't see it. <laughs> All right, Mr. Martin, thank you so much. Okay, pleasure. That was Keith Martin, partner at Chadburn and Park in Washington, D.C. He agreed to meet with me on short notice at his offices off of K Street. I was on the road for work that week and had not anticipated this interview. So in the pictures, you'll see I'm not wearing my typical business casual ensemble. I want to thank him for forgiving me for being so underdressed and accommodating me for this insightful interview. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can find me at Host Energy on Instagram and be sure to check out links and pictures on energy cast.com that wraps up episode 11 be sure to join us next week for a look at one of the fastest growing battery storage companies in the country i'm jay downhauer we'll see you next time